Shannon. And I'm Rami, and this is Workplace Hugs. We talk about interesting things we've read or heard and how it relates to the workplace experience. Our goal here is really simple. It's to help us all expand our workplace toolkit with a whole bunch of empathy without a whole new degree. Uh, we'll purposefully talk about it in three different scenarios. We'll talk about it at the high level. We'll talk about it at how we've experienced it at the lowest level or the dirt level, and then we'll bring it back up to eye level and, and give you some, some examples on how to take this back into your own workplace life. With that, Shannon, I feel like there's a little bit of competingness in what I'm saying, and I feel like that's going to lead us into what what our topic is. <laughs> so I'd love, I'd love to know what our topic is going to be this week. Yeah, so Rami, this week we're going to talk about a very dense book that I read called Immunity to Change. So should I go out and buy this book you right now? You should not go out and buy this book. Don't get me wrong. It's a great book, but it's like 350 pages of a lot of psychology studies that I think we can really effectively and efficiently instill into like a 20 minute episode for folks here today. <laughs> so Beautiful. you don't have to go and read the book. Shannon read the book. So you don't have to. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So this book is all about how do we drive change with ourselves and through others. And I think too, it's about like, how can we do that a little bit more empathically by having a better understanding of what the heck makes change so hard? for so many people, for I think everyone everywhere. So the book theorizes that we all have our own unique immunity to change. No matter how much we appear to want to change something in our workplace experience or in our lives, there is something else that's out there that's preventing us from uh, making that change. And we can overcome that immunity to change by taking a closer look at two things. One is the competing commitments and two is the big assumptions. So competing commitments are those things that like, well, I'll, I'll share examples later and I think it'll make more sense. Let me take a TV time out here and ask you a question. Do you think you really like change? I say that I really like change. Yeah. But do you truly like love change? Like if, if you woke up every day and your house was different, like you'd be super comfortable and you just like be rolling with it? <sighs> okay, that's a hard question. I do think I like change more than most people. I, I think that's why I coach on change. Because I find that when I'm helping other people change things about their lives, it makes me blow up my own a lot less. <laughs> because I would truly blow things up in my life just to like mix it up for fun. I'm, no, 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 I'm that's, very yeah, weird in I mean, that way. You're also describing my wife. So, <laughs> so yes, there are. I would say that I like the idea of change. I, I am fairly amenable to change but i don't think i am i don't seek change because i get like uncomfortable with like the the normalcy of things where mm. i think there are people like you or my wife who like if the same thing keeps happening they're like okay nope blowing this thing up like let's go on to the next thing totally that is totally me it doesn't mean that change is easy i think it, you can like change and it can still be hard for you you know, mm -hmm. like I really like change, but if I'm reflecting on when I have to change something like in myself or about myself, it can still feel hard, even though I like it. And I know that I want to do that, which I think is what the book is talking about, too. Like we can still have things that we know we really want to change that would make our workplaces better, but it can still be hard to like actually bring them across the line. And I think that's the key thing is like, regardless of your affinity for change, I think it's still hard. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're acknowledging. And I think that's 
that's part of what this book is about. Yeah, yeah. So let's get into the dirt level a little bit more here. So at the at the beginning of this conversation, the book is really encouraging folks or organizations or institutions to think about like, what is the goal, one goal that you have that you think would have a significant impact on your workplace or on your life. And one of the most impactful examples that I thought they said in the book is that they did a study with the Los Angeles school district and the Los Angeles school district has very atrocious graduation rates in the Latino population, specifically in the ELL population. So English language learners. So English language learners, the predominance of that is Latinx community. Yep. Also formerly known as ESL, English as a second language. Yes, formerly known as ESL. Now many, I think, organizations or institutions. Call it ELL. So this school district had this big goal that they thought would just make, make such a significant impact in their school district to improve graduation rates in the ELL populations that they're serving. And yet they were failing. <laughs> like everywhere they went, they were failing. And yes, we can look at the external factors that maybe were impacting their mm-hmm. failure rate. But this book says like, no, let's look inward at what are the competing commitments and the big assumptions that we have to trying to get this goal across the line. And what the superintendent eventually found through using the process that they talk about in the book is that the competing commitment that the teachers had was that they could not possibly hold these students to higher standards because they're already dealing with so much. Hold on. The teachers themselves were saying, we think the kids are already dealing with enough, whether it's like whatever other external factors it is, that we're not going to hold them to the same level that we would hold any other student to. We're dropping the bar. I don't know if they said that we're dropping the bar, but like they, they felt like they could not possibly hold them to higher standards than what where they were today. And in the book, they called this the poor little ones culture, which I was like, oh, it just hit home for me deeply because I mentor a, a Latino student. And I know the graduation rates in Minnesota are also terrible in this population. And it was really impactful to actually have people courageously share and get to the root of like, what is the competing commitment here? What is the big assumption that they're making? So the big assumption that these teachers were making was to say, well, shoot, if I hold these students to a higher standard, that might just be the thing that breaks them, that makes them totally fall apart when they're already dealing with so much trying to adjust to life in the United States or whatever it might be. So so that's the first part. That's the competing commitment. So what's the second part? How do we how do we get over that? We get over that through experimentation in a nutshell and beginning to chip away. So the analogy that I use for folks, they don't use this analogy in the book, but I was like, this is a way that it makes sense to me, is to think about it like you're on an archaeological dig site. And there is a, a fossil in there somewhere, right? There is a fossil of truth here to say, wow, if you do start pushing these students too hard, you're going to break them. The fossil is going to shatter and crumble. But there's also a lot of poo on this dig site, right? Like there's just (laughs) a lot of total crap and garbage here that we can begin to take our little chip axe and take our little like brooms and our dustpans or whatever they use at archaeological dig sites and through experimentation begin to get a clearer sense of where that line is versus what are teachers in that district maybe doing today? It's almost like they've blocked off this huge perimeter and just been like, nope, 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 nope. We're not touching it because I'm really afraid that if I touch it at all, the whole thing's going to crumble. 
And so we have to think about challenging our assumptions, challenging those competing commitments through experimentation. I like this. Yeah, the book has a couple like steps on how to support yourself in doing that safely. So it doesn't feel like. (laughs) But I think even within your example of the archaeological dig, right? Like I've got my archaeological hat on. Yes. I assume if I'm an archaeologist, I have a whip because my favorite archaeologist, (laughs) Professor Jones, has a whip. And so you know the thing that you want to change is there, right? It's the fossils. Yep. And I think if you go at it with a sledgehammer, you're going to shatter it. Like, it's just not going to be possible. And I think that's the fear that the the teachers in the example you had was, oh, if we force them to do these things, like, we're going to shatter them. Like, yes. we're literally going to break them apart. Yep. Where the suggestion from the book and the idea of experimentation is, well, how do you start to, how do you start to challenge them in small ways yep. and then continue to push them as they, as they continue to, to show you in the same way that the fossil, like as you're starting to move some of the, the debris around it, that you're starting to see that actual fossil without, without damaging it and coming at it from the right speed. The yes. question I have for you then, Shannon, is once you start to really uncover those things and see the elasticity, how do you, do you then start to accelerate that piece? Does the experimentation become a little bit broader and, and firmer? Yeah, they don't talk. Well, I don't remember if they talk about that in the book. I don't know that we need to accelerate. I think you can if you feel like you can safely do so. But so often folks are so afraid to even get started that Mm -hmm. like that is more the focal point in the book of like, how do we get started in the process of first identifying whatever our big assumption is or whatever our competing commitment is so that we can at least safely start to chip away at that huge perimeter we're putting on this thing that we're trying to do. So I think speed, you can speed up. I see clients speed up as they get clear on where the boundaries are. Yeah. But I also don't want to put that pressure on anybody that like, okay, now you have to speed up. Now let's like For sure. really No, I, I don't think it's a matter of like you have to speed up. I think it's more the experimenting is going to start small and slow. Yep. And it may continue to be small and slow even as you get more and more comfortable because that's how this big, crazy change is going to manifest itself, right? To your point earlier, whether you love change or you are very fearful of it, it's hard regardless. Yes. And it's really about that comfortability with change. And you can choose whether to go fast or slow. So so I guess, Shannon, can we bring this down to like the most low, low level? Like, how do we share like an example or show people like what this means for like a, an individual? Yeah. So the example that comes to mind a lot for me in this is people who want to change their work-life balance, you know? So Mm -hmm. I work, I work with a lot of workaholics. I I am a recovering (laughs) workaholic myself. I know we've talked about this before in podcast episodes. So I think about folks who come in with that big vision of how their life would be better, right? And that's where all of this process starts to say, wow, my life and work would be better if I had better balance between the two. So then the next step is to really think about like, well, what is my competing commitment here? And the big assumptions that I'm making if I try to change anything about the way in which I work today. So some examples that they give in the book on this one is like, you might fear that you're going to let your team down if you begin to put yourself first. Or you Mm -hmm. might fear like, oh, people are going to perceive me as selfish if (laughs) I begin to take more time to take care of my life outside of work. 
And what's the commitment there? You're committed to being perceived as a selfless person. And so how human of you, how understandable that you are terrified to change this persona that you've developed in the world. And that's where I really want to honor folks and our listeners who are thinking about this to say there is a skeleton of truth to this, right? Like, let's not Mm -hmm. just say, oh, everything you think is total crap. Like, (laughs) it's false. You're fine. Just like plow ahead into the archaeological dig. No, there is a skeleton of truth to that fear that you have. Another big assumption that folks might make is to say, well, if I put myself first, I'll become what I dislike in others, right? I'm going to be superficial and trivial and selfish. Yeah. Again, how human to think those thoughts and to have those assumptions. You're right, right? There is Mm -hmm. a boundary there. There is some truth to be had. So how do we come in really carefully with some very safe and modest experiments that you can begin to start trying to do things a little bit differently and seeing what happens and thinking about it really much through a research stance versus like a a success and failure stance, you know, like we're not saying like it's a success or failure. Like we're, we're just trying to get some more data about our big assumptions so that we can be clear about where the actual perimeter is. Well, and I think to your point here, if it's an experiment, I think the thing we need to keep in mind is most experiments fail. And so as you're trying to, let's go back to this work-life balance thing. Maybe it's, okay, I'm going to try and work out before work once this week. Yeah, that's all. Once this week, I'm going to try and work out. You try and wake up. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Okay, fine. That was an experiment. That one failed. Totally cool. Let's try again. Maybe it's I leave work early at the end of the day and I try and work out at night. Maybe like that's how my my body works better. And you try that and maybe that piece works. And it's like, okay, cool. Now I'm just going to try and get into the groove of going once a week. And then once that starts to get comfortable and you're able to really get past that competing commitment, then maybe it's like, okay, that was my Tuesdays were always my workouts. Now I'm going to start adding Thursdays and like, it's going to be Tuesday and Thursday for me. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave work early, but I think you have to be open to the idea that most experiments fail and that a failure here isn't isn't the be all end all it's really just another step forward in that you know you moved a little bit of the debris over here and there's no skeleton right there's no fossil we found that there's nothing and that's fine right like that helps us know that there's skeleton somewhere else and we've cleared that out it's almost like when you're playing battleship like yep i put a bunch of missiles in this in this corner there's no battleship in that corner even the little two guy and like that corner is now done and at least i've cleared that portion of it off and i can feel even better that i know that that didn't work and it'll help me rein into what what may work and where i will find those things that's a really great analogy on battleship too to use yeah for sure and you talking about it made me think maybe we should both i'm putting you on the spot a little bit here rami but i'm curious if we can both share a past example of where we had uh, a big assumption or a competing commitment on something we were trying to change. And we were just like, oh my gosh, I'm so sure this is never going to work. So I, I can go first. As you were talking about it, it made me remember when I first started coaching and I was like, I have to be available on nights and weekends, right? Like I just have mm-hmm. to be available. I'm coaching people across different time zones. And like some people are work addicts like I was, and there's no way they're ever going to be comfortable taking a coaching call during working hours. Mm-hmm. And so I began to like experiment with that big assumption. And first it was like, okay, I'm not going to coach on weekends anymore. And I'm going to see what happens. 
everything was fine. Nobody died. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, I'm going to cut down to say I'm going to coach one night a week late. And I'm really going to try to reserve those time slots for my West Coast clients who really need them. Nobody died. Everything was fine. <laughs> and then just recently, I got really bold. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to condense my coaching calendar into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so I can have Monday and Friday be dedicated to more like creative or admin tasks. So far, no one has died. I have had one client, a West Coast client, say to me, this is really, t- I'm wondering if we can get a consistent time and can it be Monday nights? No problem. Honestly, mm-hmm. like totally fine with that. And at least I'm only having to cater to like one versus my assumption before of like, this Everybody. isn't going to work for anybody ever all the time. <laughs> so that was something that came to mind for me of like maybe a tangible example of how you can baby step into making some changes. How can you think about like the teeniest, tiniest things you could do versus forcing yourself or telling yourself you've got to rip off the whole bandaid? Rami, does anything come to mind for you? And it's okay if it doesn't. I'm putting you on the spot. No, no. I, I think the the thing for me that I've been trying to figure out, and I will empathize with everyone here, but having a child and finding a way to still take time to work out or whatever it is, I think is really difficult. Yeah. I think initially I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to try and figure out how to do this really early, like before the kid wakes up. Like I'm going to wake up. 30 I'm gonna go for my run I'm gonna be showered and ready by the time the kid wakes up at 6 30 I tried that it never worked like there's no yes. world where I want to wake up that early and still like exist after that point yeah and so I tried that a few times that didn't work then it was like oh maybe I'll leave work early at night and I will go and try and work out then get my run in and then continue on with the evening And that just, like, also didn't work. I think for me personally, like, I can't, like, nighttime working out is, like, not my jam. But also (laughs) the idea of then coming home, needing to shower and figuring out how to, like, be a part of the family life was very difficult. Mm. And so lately it's gotten into a good groove. Like, I'll wake up, I'll do the first part with the kid, get myself ready, go for the run, come back, and then be able to do the second part with the kid in the morning. As opposed to trying to be there for all of it. And it really just comes back to having a really supportive partner. But it wasn't, that wasn't my first solution. And it was actually like my third or fourth that finally got me there, right? Like I had, I had to experiment with really early, didn't work. I had to experiment with late, didn't work. I experimented with really late, also did not work. Yes. And so it was this competing commitment and trying to find the right way to approach it that was going to work for me and for my lifestyle and so like what became like i'm gonna try to do this twice a week has become i do this three times a week and i do it the same days every week and is now just like a part of how i exist and that i think has been really good but it took a really long time and a lot of of misses to get to the hits oh i have so much compassion for that i was just talking with a friend yesterday like we've had big girl t or foster daughter for three years And I finally feel like I'm hitting a groove again in terms of my health. Because I think a lot of folks make a big assumption of I can't possibly be a great parent and take care of myself at the Mm -hmm. same time. And be a great working parent. I think there's a a lot of folks that are working parents and make that assumption. How human of you to make that assumption. And this book and hopefully the tools that we're suggesting to you today is really about like how do you begin to safely challenge that assumption? And 
through experimentation, find a solution that's going to work for you where you can hold those two things at the same time, whatever those two things are. I love it. So wrapping it up, bringing it home. How can you apply this to your everyday work life starting today? Step one is to identify something that you're like, wow, my work experience or our workplace would be so much better if dot, dot, dot. What is that like big dream vision that you've got? Step two, really think about what you fear. So really, I say to clients sometimes, invite your fears to T. Think about like, what do you fear will happen if you dare to do that thing or Mm -hmm. be different in that way or prioritize that part of whatever you're trying to do in your workplace? And then begin to get out your little, whatever the archaeological supplies are, the little Mm -hmm. brooms or sweeper things and the pickaxes and whatnot And identify some very safe and modest experiments and treat them as experiments, right? You're safe to fail and see what happens. And I think to that point, within the workspace, I think an example of this would be like, hey, we we never meet and talk about this thing. And that's something that drives all of us nuts. Like we really should get aligned on this thing. And maybe it's an email, but maybe it's a meeting. And maybe you say to everybody, hey... I know this is a struggle we've all been having. Maybe we try having a meeting once Mm. and we do this thing one time and then let's see if that works. And if it doesn't, totally fine. If it does, then let's find a way to make this a part of the process that we do. And so I think it's take the same experiment and take the same level of like take the pressure off of that thing and give it the ability to fail. And if it fails, learn from it and move past it. But if it doesn't, try and refine it and, and find a way to make it more tangible and, and, and work for you guys going forward. But I think especially within the workplace, like you you almost have to say those things out loud, even to yourself, maybe. Yes. Like, hey, I want to try and work on the morning. Like, I know that this may not work, but I'm going to try it because this may this may be an option that works out really well. Yeah. And how much pressure does that take off when you can tell yourself and others like, it's an experiment. We're going to try it. It might not work. This could totally fail. But can we try? Like the pressure level is immediately relaxed, at least for me. <laughs> me too. All right. So we'd love for you to join in on this conversation. Come follow us on Instagram. Tell us about this big goal that you might have and what your competing commitments might be and the experiments that you're going to try to just begin to chip away at it. With that, I've been Shannon. I've been Rami, and this has been Workplace Hugs. Mm-hmm.